Hello, hot girls. Welcome to Hot Girl Histories. Today we have J.D. Jones talking about her book, That of Her Seven, and her journey as a writer. So thank you for being here, Janie. Welcome. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's really my pleasure. <laughs> so your book comes out tomorrow. Today is the 29th. So did you say that tomorrow is it in bookstores? Is it available on Amazon? What will happen tomorrow? <laughs> well, it's a sort of a notional thing. I yeah. always think the, the published day. So it's been appearing in shops for yeah. the last 10 days and it will continue to appear in other shops over the next sort of month. But it's officially available on Amazon tomorrow. Do so. you know if it's in the St. Andrews Topping & Co? Are you going to check that out? Yes, I think I will go down <laughs> there. I know it's in the Edinburgh one, but I'm I'm hoping because as you know, there is a, a bit of a St. Andrews connection as yeah, well. Yeah, we'll get ah. into that. I'm so happy to be here with you because funny enough, like we met through Instagram, yes. but then <laughs> suddenly she was like, oh, um, you know, I can come down to St. Andrews, my niece goes there, and I was like, oh yeah, of course, like pretty common, and then happens to be one of my good friends, Katie, <laughs> so it <laughs> was like a, lovely a pretty connection. funny thing, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I wanted to first start with just get to know you, let yeah. the hot girl historians get to know you, but you have in your Instagram bio that you are a girl boss, which I fully agree with, <laughs> and so yeah, if you want to tell us about yourself. Well, um, I studied English literature and history of art at Edinburgh University many, many years ago. And I enjoyed all the side subjects too, like philosophy and mm. sociology. And, and so I've always been quite bookish. Um, but I think that when I became a mother and I got a deal, which I'm very proud of to write picture books, but it very much sucked me into this kind of preschool mm. environment. And I missed the more complex reading and so on, which actually I think when you're a student, you don't realize that when life gets complicated, you you won't be able to read quite as much and analyze quite as much. So I've very much gone back to that. And I do actively plan to tr move from children's into into more complex adult writing. And it seemed to me that the Edinburgh Seven, as I was a alumna of Edinburgh, and I had a great fascination with the Victorian period in terms of literature already, mm. um, I had worked for Chambers LaRousse publisher writing about Victorian heroines um, okay. at one point. So it seemed a natural place for me to go back to. And I saw this story and I loved that the University of Edinburgh did a posthumous degree ceremony for mm. the seven women in 2019. I began to research and I saw that there were lots of misapprehensions about the Edinburgh Seven. And that although there were scatterings of the story far and wide, actually it hadn't all been collated mm. in one place. Yeah. So it seemed a great opportunity to do that. But really, my success has been so far in a series for Penguin Random House called Princess Poppy. And she's a princess of nature um, and she's a feisty, innovative little child activist. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you said you're a full time writer. Does that mean that you like write? you write what you want and then you get published or that you work for like a publishing company? I'm just curious as someone yeah. who's into writing. Okay. The good thing about writing factual books mm. is you'll often get a deal based on a quite a short synopsis. Okay, interesting. With fiction, you normally have to finish the whole novel. So it's very speculative, very risky, very yeah. scary. Yeah. 
Um, nonfiction is better. So reputable publishing houses will say, give me a sample of a couple of thousand words and a pricey of the rest. Mm -hmm. And you can get a deal on that. So that you're writing with an advance mm -hmm. and with a, a deal. I don't know if it's worth saying a bit how advances work as well. I don't know. Um, okay, so an advance is a sum of money given to you mm -hmm. when a publisher wants to publish your book. And it's called advanced because it's kind of like advanced earnings, advanced royalties. Mm. So you are given, say, £3,000. And when your book is published and starts to sell and earn, mm. you have to earn through 3000 to get any more. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Kind of stressful. But also, I guess it's good that they give you some in advance, though. Yeah. And it, it, it denotes confidence in yeah. your book and that they've put it firmly in the budget mm. and that they're going to promote it well. So you said uh, when I was speaking with you that you you were an English teacher. Did you teach high school English? Yes. My mom was a high school English teacher for a while, so I really like that. Oh. I feel like there's, and she used to be, a, I mean, she is a writer at heart. People scare you when you do English at, at uni. They're like, oh, what are you going to do with that? So I am a secondary school English teacher, and I actually helped out a bit in lockdown with that oh, sort gosh, of stuff. Yeah. Um, I agree with you I always feel real connection with literary lovers um and I am very frustrated by the idea that it's not an important degree yeah, I agree. how can you actually go into a school and all of the teachers in the staff room will say well it all starts with English because they can't write about my subject unless they're good at English mm. and yet we're saying don't become yeah. an English graduate. It doesn't make any sense. It's the kind of like the actual nub of other learning. I agree. And also I think like you writing a book about that number seven, say not being a history graduate, but your English background like gave you the tools, I imagine, to think about how to like how to think, how to go to sources. Yes. And what I love about academic disciplines is that the notion of an essay does vary a bit from faculty mm. to faculty yeah um so you have to be aware of i mean i'm conscious this is not an academic book mm. of history although it's very heavily indexed researched yeah. um and the bibliography is very um intense so it's not by any means a light-hearted book yeah. in terms of history it's serious but it's not academic and my ambition for it is to reach a very wide market mm. of people who might not normally yeah. want to read history. And I, my dream would be that somebody says, well, I read this and then I started reading about abolitionists. And mm. then that got me onto the royal family in the Victorian <laughs> time, which got me onto the uh, Great Exhibition. And the, that got me back to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of just enthusiasm. It's a book of enthusiasm, I hope book of like inspiration as yeah well. yeah so let's get into the book so it the book is called the edinburgh seven and why don't we get into who were the edinburgh seven and then where did you get this idea from when did it come about how long has it taken to you know from the first idea to here we are with the book in your lap <laughs> yeah okay well um the edinburgh seven were a group of medically minded highly intelligent victorian women who were driven by the idea of accessing 
a medical degree in the United Kingdom, mm. which was not possible to do at this time, although you could do it at the Sorbonne, at the University of Zurich, and in certain colleges in Boston and New York. Nothing in the UK at this time. So they gathered together because Sophia Jex Blake, who is has has to be said, she's the sort of leading light of the group, although they're all, in my eyes, equally magnificent. Mm. Um, she put an advert in the Scotsman newspaper when she was in Edinburgh with the blessing of the Scotsman editor, Alexander Russell. Mm. And the um, advert said, who would care to join me at Edinburgh University to study medicine? <laughs> They've said, we can't entertain one woman. Yeah. Let's have a few. <laughs> And she got these responses. And in fact, it did grow from seven to 10 and then a few more. But the pivotal seven are really at the heart of it. I think I'd always heard the name Sophia Jex Blake, but hadn't engaged with the personality. Mm. But in 2019, I read about the posthumous degree ceremony. And I thought, how amazing that I went up on that platform years ago and I had never heard of them and so I thought let's see there's bound to be lots of books and films in the making and all of that and there was just a kind of a a scraps of things maybe a two-minute talk on YouTube Mm. um, that Sophia was part of another book about medical women yeah nothing really concentrating on them so that was 2019. So I've really been working on it ever since. Well, yeah. um, and I sent away for uh, out of um, print biographies to little, there was one little bookshop in Greenwich Village in New yeah. York, found a book for me wow. um, on Dr. Edith Pecci. Yeah. So really, um, it's been a journey. It's been, gosh, I have a new bit of research material this changes how I felt about this character so it's evolved and I began to see that there were seven pillars to the story Mm. as I worked on it it does take a while I think to do a non-fiction book yeah um I was very mindful of accuracy Mm. sometimes you're hearing the same story told from two perspectives in your research and they don't add up so you're playing detective to find another collaboration and um so a lot of it has had that kind of painstaking approach of i don't want to misrepresent people who are not here to speak for themselves yeah i as a history major i feel like part of our of the degree in history and i think it goes so well with english like that is my degree is this hunt for like historical material. I spoke about this on the last episode with Dr. Strzok and with Dr. Jans about um, with our research on Esperanto, there was so much that we would find and then it would, (laughs) because of the times, like stuff just wasn't as accurate as today. You have the internet and like everything is printed. Do you find like one thing that's just like, you know, their age and then they're a different age and a different like thing, right? And these little pieces that you're like, this is important. I want to figure it out. But sometimes you can't, or you can if you find like another piece of evidence. But I feel like that's the whole like treasure hunt of historical research. Oh, it's a puzzle. Yeah. And it's such a puzzle. You know, it's, it's such an absolute treat to be kind of in a way creating and solving the puzzle. And I suppose that's what making a book 
is about you kind of setting up, I suppose, um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis kind of model. Um, so that's where I got to in the in the end. But yeah, it was um, there were a number of contradictions and there were a number of misapprehensions, and I became quite passionate about honouring the women and what they'd done rather than in some quarters they were seen as troublemakers yeah. battle axes you know this is the plight of women who want to change mm. the world they will be maligned yeah. in some quarters so I wanted to not um deny that side of them you know they were very polemic they were controversial they were brave um they didn't stick within the gender sphere of Victorian Britain mm. or within the gender norms. I imagine with studying seven women or of course the wider story of these women I've done research on women Esperantists and like when you you've been working on it for years now and I've also been working on some research for a few years and you get like kind of connected I'd say to these historical yeah. characters you get excited I would I don't know if you had the same but like when I would find something that I didn't think I'd expect to find it's like this exciting moment and also this idea that you can bring agency to these women that as you said they appear in some parts but to really give them a book that is just about them and goes mm. so deeply into their lives I love how you focus on them as like medics and people interested in their education but they're also mothers they're also yes. have they their own um hobbies and I think that's so important with studying women in the past as well as we like to just say like okay they were medical students they were doctors mm -hmm. they were this or that it's like women have always been and will always be such like a combination of mothers caregivers yes. and then also professionals <laughs> they yes. do so much in society so I really love how your book goes into that oh thank you yes well um most of the women did marry and some of them had children and um, Isabel Thorne brought her children to Edinburgh and the women lived, I love this part, <laughs> they lived in a sort of commune in 15 Buclou Place, cool. a very cool kind of academic intellectual yeah. group of women with their children <laughs> um, at 15 Buclou Place in Edinburgh. But Sophia, for example, she had a great sense of humour and when men were writing these ill-humoured letters into the Times and the Scotsman about how it would be the ruination of society <laughs> to allow women to, uh, you know, they're not cut out for it and their brains are too small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And Sophia had a fictitious kind of respondent she was called the inquisitive woman and she would retort back with That's hilarious awesome. replies um so she did manage to keep a sense of humor um they liked to tour and travel around scotland around this area of scotland and the mm. trossachs and so on so they had a life beyond this campaign this cause celebre which of course is why we're talking about them but you're quite right to say that they were a collection of contradictions and completely natural um, interests and tastes and leanings and why wouldn't they be you know that's how yeah. we are I, I love that about them too the more you get to know them the more you think oh this is typical of Matilda yeah. <laughs> that's funny actually yeah. yeah you kind of get a sense of their personality yeah and... I wanted to ask you about sources. Did you go into like the Edinburgh archives? Do they have anything on them? Because I know unions usually love archives on 
I guess, students who have been there, if they publish anything. Yeah. What, what was your process? Did you start in Edinburgh and, like, kind of go outwards? Or um, Yes, I did a bit in Edinburgh, and I I got a, lo- a lot of good background at the Surgeon's Hall Museum mm. attached to the university, and I've, I've been in conversation with the university a lot. But I actually found um, that the official biographies of Sophia and Edith led me into um, newspaper articles and diary entries which formed the most kind of illuminating parts of the research Mm. because I was conscious that I didn't want it to be date after date, acts of parliament and lists and so on. So that is all in there and if anybody's inspired enough to go more deeply into them Mm. that's great but um so there's a mixture really of um yes um previous writings university papers um i found that you know there were great works done by women in various universities which touched around the edges of a lot of it so then I would go into those abstracts and realize yes I'd like this whole paper yeah mm-hmm. definitely I really I want to get into the structure of the book so it's 35 chapters and you start with the seven right with mm-hmm. Sophia Jacks Blake as the first chapter and then at the end you have some chapters like women in society women mm-hmm. in work so I was wondering what so you did all your research and that move was the next step were you trying to decide like you I know that you want you wanted to make it a story but I think what's great about this book is as well you can you can you could read the whole story or you could read about specific events and specific um parts of their lives so how yeah why did you choose to have 35 chapters in like a 180 page yeah yeah I mean maybe one sort of pragmatic answer to that is that because I'm used to writing for young people, mm. I like to separate ideas yeah. out quite a bit. But I think it was um, more the fact that as I was researching, I started to think, oh, okay, I get this. So midwives were often accused of being witches. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons that it was hard for women to have credibility in this area Um, and then okay so Florence Nightingale created that training place for nurses so she's very important because the idea of training women by women was something that became more and more popular in Victorian uh, Britain and then I realized there's a great deal of importance on the reform acts in the 19th century because as women became more powerful, which I see as a kind of extension of the blue stocking movement at the end of the 18th century. Um, But as they became more powerful in Victorian times, that was really when the government started to say, we must make rules against Mm, this. Before that, it was quite sort of fluid. That was something that I was surprised by in the book. Yeah. It just, it wasn't something that they, like, it had just recently been, and I think it's 1832, right? Yes, that's the big reform act. Mm -hmm. There was a further one later on. Um, And so 
you could vote as a woman. I mean, voting was chaotic, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, not all men were voting. Mm. Um, mostly it was if you owned land and paid a certain mm. amount of tax and so on. But people were on record as voting kind of craftily <laughs> in their local area. I mean, I don't, I was going to say it wasn't computerized back then, but I still go to vote and they still have like a ruler and a pencil to score out your name. <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to make a book out of a series of events, I think you, well, this was my um, experience that you have to decide what you're hanging the evidence and information on mm. otherwise it could just be a collection of thoughts or essays yeah. really so in 1869 Sophia arrives in Edinburgh at Waverley station and she's just scoping out would they maybe have me here for a yeah. degree and she is the most canny operator <laughs> she is like a modern kind of PR woman um, <laughs> she understands back then that you need to get key personalities on your side, mm. that you need to get the media on your side. Um, so she's in Edinburgh scoping out, could I come here? And she's meeting people like Sir James Young Simpson, one of our greatest ever Edinburgh mm. medics. And he's inviting her for breakfast and she's saying, um, what do you think? You know, could, would Edinburgh try women? And he said, yes, I'm all for it. So she's starting to think, come on, I can do this. Yeah. Um, so she then places the advert and eventually, over a period of months, they're admitted kind of on an, an ad hoc, what they would call an extramural basis that, mm. you know, you can register for some classes, but you're mm. not quite on the courses the yeah. same way as the boys. But something happens in 1870 in the spring exams which is thought to be a real seminal moment in this story by most reporters, which is called the Hope Scholarship Scandal. And this is when Edith comes first in chemistry, but is in fact not awarded the prize because um, Professor Crumbrown thinks it will be too upsetting for the men who are not really getting used to the women on the course. So at this point, there's a feeling of this is a big problem. I, Sophia thinks, I don't think they're going to actually allow us to graduate as MDs. Mm -hmm. And she starts to get concerned about that. All through that year, there's a, a building of name calling, um, of violent behavior, um, for example, vandalism of their property, intimidation, um, no seating for them when they turn up for lectures and so on. This culminates in November 1870 in the truly shocking Surgeons Hall riot. Yeah. Um, the women are approaching Surgeons Hall for an anatomy exam and it's been decided among some male members of the course that if they take exams and get certificates, they will have to graduate. And if they graduate, they will have to become doctors. Yeah. And so the examinations are something that must be blocked. Um, and there were about 200 people waiting. They were pelted 
with mud and rotten foods and so on. They were called all sorts of names and they were jeered at and encouraged to leave. They linked arms, they would not leave. They stood firm. It was terrifying. Um, They could have died in that riot. It was a very um, volatile situation and those who witnessed it spoke of the utter shock that in an age where, to quote one of the newspapers, where chivalry towards women was the norm, Mm. that you would see educated young men being that violent towards women was utterly shocking. So a janitor opened the door for them and let them in and they took the exam. Now, something I've noticed in my research is that when you kind of uh, make it clear that an organization or an individual has behaved badly, nine times out of 10, instead of backing down and apologizing, they'll double down Mm. and get angrier. And that's really what happened after that. So the next stage was um, a court case in June 1871, where Sophia is um, accused of defamation of character of one of the rioters. And it's quite a contrived case. Um, There's a technical point that she makes a claim which she didn't witness. Mm. So that made it quite difficult for her lawyers. But most people in the courtroom felt that she had right on her side. And although she lost the case, it very much put public opinion on her side. So then they go into a phase of being the cause celebra, the celebrity feminists, the will you talk in York, in London? Will you um, inspire these young doctors in Boston? Yeah. You know, They were all working hand in hand. It was a lovely period yeah. of the suffrage and the, the medical movement. And then they, they do leave Edinburgh, but in 1876, um, Sophia brings about an act of parliament to make it um, unlawful to deny women a medical mm. education at any university in the country. So it's a huge legal change. Um, and what I love is in 1878, Sophia really does boss it when she comes back to Edinburgh as Scotland's first female doctor mm. and sets up practice in manor place and I just look at that plaque and that house and think of her in there and all that she and her colleagues had gone through um death threats and absolutely vitriolic unwarranted hatred yeah and it makes me think gosh we we must take inspiration from that courage. Yeah, and their story needs to be told. Yes. Which is exactly what you've done. I wanted to talk about, I think my biggest takeaway from this book and this story is like, it's all about women, but in the same way, it's all about men's fear. There's just this like, men are so fearful of these women. The I don't know, you can tell me who said it, but the one part that I laughed at was like, a man was wrote, about the number seven like praised them and then was like but I wouldn't marry any of them oh yes that, that was a good one <laughs> <laughs> that was Robert Louis Stevenson yeah. um the famous Edinburgh author of Treasure <laughs> Island and so on yeah so there was the idea in some circles that an educated woman wouldn't be a good mother she'd mm. be distracted she'd also like wouldn't give you any peace because she'd have too many opinions yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and so that was a very real kind of fear. But this became worse in Victorian times. So Georgian period had seen a bit more equality. And even the Tudor times did. Mm. This was the Victorian gender spheres, which we do see back even in Roman times of um, state and home, mm. and that you can't possibly have political and financial opinions if you're running the home. Um, therefore, you can't meddle in matters of state. And the whole thing is circular, that if you're not getting an opportunity to understand it and be part of it, then how can you have opinions? And then you're not valued if you're not sort of in the core of it. So they decided in Victorian times in the middle and upper classes to go very much male and female spheres. The male sphere being the city and politics and the female sphere being the domestic, the child rearing and the pleasantries, you know, the dancing classes and the piano and the sewing and so on. And Not that there's anything wrong at all with those things, um, but there was no choice. I think another, they say there's a lot of like, oh, go back to being midwives. You can be a midwife, but you can't be a doctor. I think that's also really interesting. That, like childbearing is so supposed to be, like they see it as such a womanly profession to work with women, obviously birthing children. But the idea that you could be a doctor and not necessarily just focus on childbearing is another interesting part. And yeah. there's that passage that explains how like they thought women couldn't become doctors because to become a doctor you have to look at like gross body stuff yeah. and they're like, women will faint, <laughs> so they can't do it. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, that is interesting, isn't it? Because clearly childbirth's not the easiest yeah. thing to witness. <laughs> um, and they've been doing that all these years. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of excuses. Now, I think one very interesting aspect of the story is religion. So certain religious families like Quakers and Methodists were so progressive about educating their daughters. Mm. And you saw this in the kind of Louisa Alcott's yeah. um, Little Women, um, that the abolitionist movement came out with the good heartedness of that kind of compassionate social conscience Christianity. And you saw some of that in Britain too. And some of the girls who did medicine, in fact, came from those kind of families. But in Edinburgh, there was a bit of Calvinism lingering over, I mm -hmm. feel, from the whole kind of John Knox, Mary Queen of Scots conflict. And the idea that, um, you know, women must be aware of their limitations and I mean, John Knox wrote a pamphlet about, you know, how to stop the march of the women. Um, yeah. And he, he actually um, gave sermons on this subject and was passionate in his ideas um, of suppressing women in the academic spheres and the, the city spheres. So there was still that feeling in Edinburgh and I will be absolutely honest and say I have experienced that in my lifetime and not very long ago as well, mm. that it's still there a bit in Edinburgh. Um, and so some branches of Christianity are progressive and others not so much. And I think I sort of characterize it a bit as the Enlightenment versus Calvinism for the soul of the university. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Before we get into passages, I wanna I just have some things that I 
pulled out of yeah, sure. the book. One is that Sophia fell in love with a woman and that yes. her partner writes about her. Um, could you tell us more about this? Yeah. I was just really, I like picked it up because it appears in the beginning and I was like, wait, Margaret? She's in a relationship with someone called Margaret. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Sophia and Margaret met um, later in Sophia's life and they did live together and Margaret Todd writes the official biography of Sophia. Um, Sophia really did love women and female company and I don't even see it as a big deal in her life. I don't think she was hung up on it at all. Mm. She loved men. She, she was very, very influenced by certain male professors such as David Masson who she said was one of the gentlest kindest most noble souls of all time um her father her brother lots of Edinburgh professors um she was even supported by Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley and so she loved men but in her private life yeah she she preferred the company of women but she didn't have a lot of relationships mm -hmm. um she was a very sincere person and she and Margaret were very happy later in their life it's it's just a lovely natural part of the story it's yeah. not anything I mean it's possible that there was a bit of prejudice mm. against her because of that but the other women also who mostly did marry um, and become mothers um, and some were you know, there's a whole range of femininity mm. in this group, which I love. Um, but even those who were conventionally, you know, more, I don't, re I really don't want to use the wrong term here, but who, who would have looked to the Victorian gentleman like they were in the female sphere, mm. <laughs> um, even those sort of women would be called unnatural mm. magdalenes meaning reformed prostitute um they would be um you know you you should have been born a man um you're a disgrace yeah. what sort of woman would want to be a doctor it's unthinkable it's unsuitable I think one of the relating to the fear, one of the best parts to me was um radical philanthropic woman, maybe even socialist, wanted to work for next to nothing and help the sick poor compassionately instead of keeping it to a prestigious yeah. and lucrative old boys club, which is so like the idea that women could make medicine like more accept accessible or more like available and they want to help people rather than just keep it in this like mm -hmm. small sphere. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, men were scared. <laughs> they were scared. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so that that was your point about the the fear of men, and, and that is borne out by the women coming top in anatomy. I think there were two hundred on the course, and the women were in the top four. Yeah, in terms of examination results and so on, and there was also loss of face because if you say at a public debate, as um, Professor Robert Christensen did, that women's brains were too small yeah. to be good doctors. Um, and they weren't clever enough, and then they come top in the the, yeah. the whole year group. <laughs> Everything's gone. Yeah. So that that was a kind of um, humiliation. Mm. Um, I I come back to this idea that 
it was just a few, a few, yeah. a few bad men, as I like to call it, um, a few difficult men. Yeah. Um, and but those were the powerful ones. Yeah. And as Edith points out in a letter a bit later in life, that although the university structure had a council, a senatus, a faculty, um, in fact, there were four kind of ruling governing bodies within the university. She said they all sort of folded into each other because the same people were on most of them, including on the board at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, which was always extremely close with the medical Mm. faculty. So those characters who would meet in gentlemen's clubs and so on Mm. and would have notions on squashing this because for some of them, they'd never wanted the women at all. For some of them, they'd agreed to it based on the fact they came as a sort of hobby. Um, and there was a small percentage were delighted for them to become full doctors. But it was a full mix. And fear was there, fear of the earning power of the profession, for sure. Because it was thought, like you said there, that there would be perhaps in some women be a more philanthropic or socialist Mm. social reform kind of sentiment so there was fear um and i suppose the kind of elitist vibe of you know you are so clever you got into edinburgh to study medicine you're so special you're going to be the future leading lights in Mm. scottish medicine and well, here come the girls and they're actually scoring higher in the tests and you've called them all these names. So there was (laughs) a bit of that. Um, And it was kind of shocking, but understandable. And maybe some of it could have been managed differently when you look at it now. Mm. I mean, it's incendiary, isn't it, to have court cases and things. And it was always going to blow the story up. Um, You can't then put it back to normal size. In my research on women as brandis, I found some parallels with these women who were trying to become medics. So there were some women as brandis who were medics. So one was Isabella Mears, who she took her qualifying exams in the Royal College of of Physicians in Ireland in 1881 because she couldn't obtain it in Scotland, even though she was Scottish. And she's the 25th woman on the medical register in Ireland. Um, And she opened Woodburn Sanatorium, which is in near the Meadows and Brunsfield Links um, in Edinburgh. And it was an open-air treatment centre for tuberculosis. Um, And she made it with her husband in 1899. And she writes about it in Esperanto. But her professional work is spoken about in the English Woman's Review of Social and Industrial Questions in 1907, 1908. And like, there's no reference of her husband. Like she was such a doctor herself. And I I pointed that out because you mentioned that a lot of women go to Dublin to get their Mm -hmm. qualifications. Mm -hmm. Another thing is the book starts out, I think one of the first lines you'll probably read it is like the, Sophia says like, we want to be doctors with no extra favor. We want to be doctors like the men. And there was this whole thing that I'm writing about now with these women Esperantists. So Heather Beveridge, who's from Dundee, she goes to St. Andrews for chemistry. She starts working with a man named James Walker in Edinburgh, actually. And she wants to join the Royal Society of Chemists. Yeah. And at this time, like women in the early 1900s, women aren't allowed, they're allowed to like practice, be chemists, they publish 
their works on chemistry, not their, chem they, their works on chemistry. And they like they think they're gonna get admitted in 1904. And then it all becomes a bit like everyone's like, wait, should we actually let women join the Royal College? Like this is or the Royal Society. Yeah. And so there's this report she signs, Heather Beveridge from Dundee signs this report in that or this letter in 1909 after a report was circulated claiming that women who had petitioned were linked to like suffrage and that these women were also who wanted to vote they also wanted to join this like uh, society it's so bad and 31 women chemists one of them was heather beverage felt it necessary to like write back and say the women chemists were seeking the admissions as fellows oh so there was society of fellows and they were not like with the radical elements of society they simply wanted to be like they had a common interest in chemistry. That's all that was binding these women yeah. together. So they had to specifically say, we are not suffragists. We are not mm -hmm. trying to fight for women. We just want to be chemists. Like we want to be yeah. recognized for our work. I thought of it, of this idea of like these women, as much as they probably did have, who knows behind the scenes, what they were actually thinking of the future of women in society. But they're like, we just want to be chemists just like you. It's not yes. necessarily political, or at least Heather Beveridge in the signing of this letter, she's saying to the fellows, like, I, I, it's not political. Yes. But it's so interesting how women are, have to do that at that time. Nowadays, I don't know. <laughs> Nowadays, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, well, so I think we have sort of different problems now, but that's really interesting. And I think in the seven women that I've looked into with great depth some certainly were not political yeah. at all the ones who are political it really is about becoming doctors mm. um and in some cases they would like to team up with other activist groups but they just don't have the time or headspace to be that political yeah exactly so yeah it is about you know choosing your battles and working out what your end game is mm -hmm. and I think that women have always had to be very strategic yeah. because as you pointed out at the start of the discussion you have your private life you have your responsibilities yeah. um, you have your duties as a parent or, or a daughter or a wife or a lover and that you can't actually campaign for everything yeah. and everyone. You have to choose. Yeah. Do you want to pick whatever passages you would okay. like to read? I know the first quote like that you start the book with, I really love. Yeah, let's, let's start with that and um, take it from there. So this is a, a quote which I think propelled me on the days when I was thinking, will this ever shape up into a book? And what am I doing here? Um, it's, you know, I didn't feel worthy of the task, but I kept coming back to this by Abigail Scott Dunaway, suffragist, who lived between 1834 and 1915. I'm just going to put my glasses on. <laughs> the young women of today, free to study, to speak, to write, to choose their occupation, should remember that every inch of this freedom was bought for them at a great price. It is for them to show their gratitude by helping onward the reforms of their own times, by spreading the light of freedom and of truth still wider. The debt that each generation owes to the past, it must pay to the future. So that speaks to me that 
we must carry on with the campaigning and seek to remember those who suffered for us, but also to take the quest forward because there are definitely still anomalies. It's only five years since it was revealed that the BBC was paying women half what they were paying the men. By some reports, there are only 18% of medical top consultants are women. So although now it's easier to go to university, there are still some discrepancies in opportunity in certain echelons of society. So we're by no means finished our journey. So maybe now if I just read a bit from the yes. first chapter, yeah. this sets out the scene. Chapter one. The year was 1869. The country was Scotland. The issue was equality. Enter centre stage the female medical students of Edinburgh. Seven intelligent and inspirational Victorian women made history when they linked arms and rose up together in the joint purpose of becoming fully qualified medical doctors in Scotland's capital. They were no hobbyists. Their intention was to practice medicine in a fair field and no favour. Their destination was the historic University of Edinburgh opened in 1583, renowned for its excellent faculty of medicine. From across Britain, they travelled with delighted trepidation to enlightened Edinburgh. After tentative improvements in higher education for women in the 1850s and 60s, their excitement at being accepted at last by Edinburgh's famous medical faculty was palpable. Dr Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's earlier progress in medical training had inspired many, but disappointingly failed to clear the path for other women. Because the Society of Apothecaries in London promptly blocked further women students following her success. She continued on to Paris to complete a medical degree at the Sorbonne. There were several European and American routes to becoming a qualified female doctor, but nothing in Britain. It was time for a new approach for women in Britain with medical ambitions, and Sophia Jekes Blake led the crusade valiantly. Unsurprisingly, there were rejections from some of the notable British universities, but after cajoling, Edinburgh stepped up. Finally, a British university willing to train women as doctors. Good for Edinburgh. There was much to celebrate and be positive about. However, there was one critical issue. Could Edinburgh, a pillar of the 19th century Scottish patriarchal establishment, truly adopt and maintain such a progressive policy? I love that last line. I remember when I read it, I highlighted it. I think it's still <laughs> a question that we have with a lot of institutions today. Don't we? Um, yeah. With the patriarchal establishment, how far will they go? Um, Did you see the court case yesterday where the actress won the, a lawsuit for, she'd been accused of um, causing a film to be cancelled and she very, very bravely went to the high court to defend mm. herself knowing where the truth lay and she won the case yesterday oh um against i i can't actually say that it was an all male production team i won't say that because i don't know all the details but um it's still essential to call out that kind of misogyny where you see it 100 percent. so 
not to spoil anything but i know that this book might have a screen adaptation will you tell us about yeah. that because i can already as someone who read the book i can see it on screen it is such a good story uh, thank you well i mean that's not my doing it is a good story yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and um one journalist this week said to me, hey, you could never have created as good a baddie as um, <laughs> Professor Christensen. <laughs> you know, you're, if it was fiction, your editor would have said, well, he's a bit too much, tone him down. Yeah. Um, so funny. Uh, but um, so the idea is that we are going to make a pilot for an episodic development for, t for television because on, on discussing this very thoroughly with a, a film and TV production team, we kind of realized that a feature film would require us to zoom in on one moment and magnify yeah. it. And we would lose quite a lot of the story. And as you pointed out, the kind of intriguing side alleys to this story, you know, the, the witchcraft, and the Crimea um, and the reform acts and the, the spheres and all the kinds of um, Victorian royal family, their attitudes, which very much created this kind of oppression of women. I love that the royal princesses defied their mother and some of them became feminists though, um, particularly Princess Louise and Alice. Um, so for, for TV, we think there are so many great aspects to this naturally wonderful story. Um, so we're making a short film at the moment, um, which revolves around those seven pillars I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, which the story naturally falls into. Um, and we have roles in Scotland currently, um, we're looking for a narrator, um, we're looking for actors, um, and we are looking for screenwriters, um, because we're determined, we're determined this will go to screen. Because although I think, you know, this, the signs are a lot of people are reading the book, which is incredibly moving for yeah. me. Um, and I speak as someone who I've sold a lot of books in the past and I've seen little girls on flights reading my books and I've have had that buzz. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the women to be known about. Yes. I genuinely would have put this book out without my name on it. Yeah. It, it isn't about me, but then if I don't talk about it, you know, it, it, it the message won't spread. So any ideas on who would be a great Sophia? I don't know what your thoughts are, Claire, but... Me. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Well, why not? Uh, why not? Um, so these are the kind of fun aspects of it that are evolving alongside the launch of the book. I think it is important. I was thinking earlier about the importance of evidence and authenticity and credibility. Um, and I'm all for those things. As an English teacher, I'm always saying, you can't possibly say that about Othello unless you give me a piece of evidence. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with this. I feel like I have 
a knowledge and a bank of research that enables me to think about the film or mm. a TV. And I could help say, if yes. they, like, do something, you're like, wait, 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 don't do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice little human story as to how I met with the production company because my eldest son was home for Christmas and, and New Year and he came to me on New Year's Day and said, oh, great, um, Hogmanay party last night, mom, in Edinburgh's new town. And I didn't realize that one of my university friends is now running a film and TV company. Um, And he would like to meet you. So um, I've been discussing that since January. And that's kind of the level that the world works at. And, And when you hear of a connection or a kind of synergy, I always think that's a signal that you must run with it. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. I love that. So you told me that last week, was it, you went to the Rest of the History live show? I know they're on tour, right? Or Yes, they are. <laughs> so my family's been following this podcast since it started pretty much, which I think was about 2020. Mm. Um, and... I guess if anyone told you that you get addicted to just listening to voices with Mm. nothing visual and that it would all be about history, you might think, okay, well, (laughs) sounds all right. Um, But it's just been such a phenomenon. So it was lovely to be in the huge Usher Hall and to see it completely crammed full for the rest is history and to actually witness that sort of jolly and engaged kind of audience for two experts discussing history. I mean, there was a big screen there too with some visuals, but it's essentially just a kind of verbal conversation. And for that to be so inspiring and in the space of one and a half hours to go from the Stuart Monarchs to Greyfriars Bobby to Alexander the Great. Um, Can I ask what did they, how was like, what did they cover? Did they have a theme for the show? Yes. So broadly, the first half was about heroes and villains. Interesting. And what was quite interesting was the they focused on one or two who could be interpreted in both ways. Okay, For example, cool. Winston Churchill. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a very ingenious way to start the show. And then what happens at, at the interval, you can tweet questions. Oh, perfect. <laughs> um, and then those come up on a big screen. And then the way I would describe it, it's like the second half of Mastermind when people are ad-libbing away from their chosen research subject, you know, then you really see the brilliance of these guys that they can answer on all kinds of things. And and notional questions like, um, what's your favorite every year in history? Or, you know, does Scotland or England have the best patron saint? So it was really good fun. It strikes me that we're, I don't know if I'm overstating this, but in a sort of golden age of history, of love of history, that there have been a lot of films and TV adaptations. And, you know, everything from the very weighty to the Bridgerton, but it's still all about looking at the past and and you can very often go down a rabbit hole of research based on, a little side cameo character, for example, from history. 
I think I'm very interested in that, particularly in women's history, of opening up a story which has just been referred to on the fringes before. I agree. There's so much of that as well with women's yeah. history, but I've realized with my Esperanto research and stuff, it's like there's so much to be said and that is just not I don't know, people haven't taken the time to research. That's all it is. And, you know, there's been that hashtag recently, women in history shouldn't be a mystery. Mm, that's a good one. I need to adapt that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I love it because it's so true. Um, and I think we've spoken a little bit about when you asked about the structure of the book um, mm. and about storytelling, that uh, oftentimes I think if a story isn't told well, it's discarded. Yeah, 100%. If it's just summarized too much or the emphasis is wrong um, or it's depicted in a flat manner. So it's very important to, to grapple with the elements, I think, of, of what you research and pull to the surface what, what I've called pillars mm. of what people can actually hold on to yeah. and then you can hang all your other decorations off I love them. that metaphor that's a good one I think it's a bit mixed <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was just very very exciting for me to actually meet those guys who had been extraordinarily kind to my son yeah. when he was unwell yeah. so I can't even express how genuine they are yeah that's amazing um what does the next so book comes out tomorrow i'm gonna post this on the day that it comes out um what is on the agenda for the next week and with for the edinburgh seven uh well i'm going to be going to st george's school for girls on wednesday uh, i'm going to be signing in bookshops like the lighthouse and toppings um and talking to some more journalists and keeping my fingers crossed for interviews. Um, in particular, I would love to speak on Women's Hour. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did that in the past. Um, and it was on the subject, which actually, Claire, you raised when we first met, which was, what is it like to be a very feminine woman with three sons <laughs> I just feel like you're such a girl's girl in the best way possible like I was talking to Katie about this I was like mm -hmm. you just seem like you get along so well with like women and girls and as an English teacher I just see you as like yeah, someone who would, you would you would feel comfortable talking to after school when you're at school and having a bad day that's oh that's <laughs> very very sweet of you well I mean they do have lovely girlfriends so I'm yeah. getting that in now <laughs> thank god <laughs> I just sent Ben's girlfriend a copy of um Daisy Jones and the Six. Okay. Um, so I get to buy books <laughs> for for women now. Women's Hour would be great, and um, radio, and you know, possibly some more podcasts. And what I'm feeling, and it's just a kind of an energy, um, and I'm a very positive thinker, and I kind of roll with the way that my my gut is telling me to, but I feel that this is going to build momentum and that I just need to pace myself. So every morning there is some new emails and I find social media amazing. I know a lot of people think it's a, a place of trolling and criticism. Mm. And I think it is what 
you wish it to be. I mean, I find it brilliant. And to have new Twitter followers who are historians, Mm. um, and equally, we met on Instagram, didn't we? (laughs) Um, So more social media activity. Um, But my sons have requested, please, mum, no more TikTok dancing. That's so funny. I like scrolling through TikTok personally, but to create content for TikTok, especially for a podcast, for a book, you could do some good stuff. For a podcast, unless I had like a nice video or something. Yeah, I I certainly am not the person (laughs) to to recommend what to do, but I have, I think quite pluckily put myself (laughs) in in the mix. And um, I'm in the early stages of of my content some of it might be removed at a future day <laughs> so funny do you have anything you want to shout out any final words and then any like you know tell us your twitter and instagram and all that oh great well um first of all i wanted to say that it's been an amazing opportunity for me to speak to a young woman about this subject and um i do appreciate that very much um I do feel quite strongly that this is different from all my other book launches, that it's not about me, it's about these characters and their legacy. And I don't think their legacy has been um, properly represented. And I would like to correct that. And I would love if you would join me in that. Um, And I guess there are various ways of doing that. If you follow me on my social media, then you will hear what I'm up to. Um, I was thinking somewhat ambitiously of having a kind of suffragette-style rally in the summer (laughs) with um, female historians speaking either about their book or their research and maybe with some live music. Um, And there will be people listening to this from my camp saying, Janie, I thought we told you that would be way too complicated. (laughs) But I'm hoping for something like that. (laughs) That I would love that. Oh, well, I mean, as long as you bring your own bottled water and you don't think we're going to lay on anything like, do you remember that Fire Island crisis? No. (laughs) Okay, well, that's another story, Claire. Um, So I'm on um, Twitter at Janie Lit, and I'm on Instagram at Janie Jones Literary Princess. That's with that name. I love it. Oh, thank (laughs) you. And I'm on TikTok at Janie Jones 2 and Facebook at Janie Jones and LinkedIn. I think that's everything. So I'm uh, I'm out there and I'm very responsive and I'd love to know what you think of the Edinburgh Seven. Um, if you get the chance to read the book, the paperback will be out later um, as well, which will be another kind of mini launch and turning point. But I would just like as a takeaway for us to think about that it's almost like feminism's a bit unfashionable in some quarters and maybe we don't want to call it that anymore but whatever it is there is still a problem in society the treatment of women violence towards women um women being looked over despite their qualifications and it's not in all quarters by any means there's some excellent progress from the victorian times but i would actually um ask you to 
consider what they went through and also examine situations you find yourself in all the time. If we think, for example, about the women at the Sarah Everard Peace um, gathering who were then treated in the most violent way. All of these things are part of this story, you know, that there would be a riot orchestrated by men, but somehow a woman was taken to court. So I hope it gives some food for thought anyway. Yes, I'm so honored to have you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Claire. Bye, hot girls. <laughs> See you. Bye bye.